Morning, everybody. There we go. That was a little bit better. Great. Wow, we got a humdinger of a passage, you guys. Does anyone say that anymore? It's kind of an old phrase these days. Um, my name is Josh Rice. I'm one of the members of the Outward uh, Preaching uh, group here, and uh, I'm a former professor at Corbin University. And uh, someone asked me right before this, uh, do you get nervous when you, when you preach? And uh, the honest truth is yes. Um, when I lecture, it's just like, it's just information. So lectures, lecturing is easy, at least I, I found. Preaching is hard because it's not enough that you hear the information. If you don't hear from God, we've wasted our time. And so like, I'm aware of the burden that this is. And I, I also, I'm just going to tell you briefly, Tim was supposed to preach today, but he is sick. So I found out as of seven this morning, I'm preaching. So Fortunately, because uh, I'm on the preaching team, I do kind of try to write up some research notes for, for the preaching staff. So I have been in the passage, but I haven't been thinking what I was going to say about it. I've just been collating thoughts and sending paragraphs to people about, oh, think about this, think about this. So I have to bring it all together. So naturally, the first thing I want to do is exit the passage entirely to frame where we're going. Let me start with a weird story. You guys may remember Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if you guys know Daniel at all, but in Daniel 4, there's this pretty wild story about King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, um, a Babylonian king, had no concern for God that we're real aware of. And one day in his pride, God judges him. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar's got two stories of judgment. This is the second one in in, uh, Daniel 4. And all of a sudden, King Nebuchadnezzar becomes something like a cow. This is one of those stories in the Old Testament that if you're not a Christian, didn't grow up in the church, you're like, is that really in my Bible? It's there. And it's told to him, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he wills. And immediately it happens. He falls down. It says like his nails grew long. It gets hairy. And he goes and walks around and eats grass for a bunch of years. It's a weird story. I want you to watch what happens to Nebuchadnezzar because he is humiliated. The greatest king of earth, the most powerful man alive, is like a cow. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion, if you guys have heard this before, this is, sometimes we read this in Christmas passages, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does, what he, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stop his hand or say, what are you doing? <laughs> so Nebuchadnezzar has to be a cow for seven years. And he's like, oh, God is God and there's no one like him. That's Nebuchadnezzar's story. Last week, we looked at Judas, and I said, let's not be Judas. This week is, let's not be Nebuchadnezzar. Let's not have to be a cow for a couple years to get the story. Now, where I want to go with that, with this story of humiliation, is we're looking right into the center of the beginning of Jesus' route to the cross. If, if we were kind of like watching a train, you're like, chugga, 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 the speed's accelerating. We know where we're going. The trajectory is set. We're going right to the heart of Christ's humiliation, and the the title of the message today is His Weakness, Our Strength. Because I want you guys to see that as Jesus is propelling Himself, no one makes Jesus do this. This is the command of God, and He obeys. 
as he propels himself to the cross, he is going right into the heart of the deepest humiliation possible. And out of that humiliation, we can find joy and strength and life. So I want us to compare and contrast. Nebuchadnezzar gets humiliated to see who God is. Jesus gets humiliated so we get to taste and enjoy God as our friend. We got a way better place. Nebuchadnezzar, it says in Scripture, he's restored to be a king again. We've got a better thing than becoming kings, ladies and gentlemen. We can be the friend of God. That's what Scripture promises. So follow me here. Let's dive into the passage. I'm going to pray real quick and we'll do it. Dear Jesus, would you open our eyes to see the power of your word? God, we all know humiliation and embarrassment. Maybe just little ways, maybe a couple big ways. But God, you took on the deepest, darkest exposure. You were naked before the wrath of God at sin. You bore every cruel and dark deed ever done on your body. And you rose in glory. Would you open this passage so we can see that as we look at your humiliation, we will discover the surpass the unsurpassed the impossible to count stretch and breadth and reach of your love would that transform us today amen all right let's get into it oh man i already started great all right my dad was a preacher he always started crying too so i guess i follow my fall in that train um so let's start, just, I'm just going to go straight through the passage. Again, I didn't have a ton of time to prep, so I just want to lead you through where this passage goes. Let's start in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, this actually happens twice in Scripture. I looked at the parallels earlier this week when I was writing my research packet for, the, for Tim at the time. Um, and basically, the first time the disciples dis- dispute who's greatest, who should sit by Jesus, um, that time he resolves it with a kid. He says, If you look to a child, that's what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you guys are familiar with that story. So this time Jesus, that first time Jesus says, if you want to get in, you got to be like a kid. you got to receive humbly. That's how you get into the kingdom. But they argue about it again. And this time it's different. This time it's not how do I get into the kingdom. It's how do I place in the kingdom? What's my level of authority in the kingdom? What's my role? What's my rank? You following me? Where do, I, where, where do I come out in the list of the kingdom? And Jesus rebukes them for this. He says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. So, obviously, the first point here is just really simple. This is an ethical principle, right? Jesus says, in the kingdom vision of conduct, how do people in the kingdom behave? People who serve are the ones who have authority, not people who are in authority who tell people what to do. That's not the way this works. The kingdom's inverted. People who serve and give and offer themselves up are honored and glorified and respected. You know, I was thinking, um, you know, I, I grew up in the church uh, as a PK, and there are one or two guys in my church who were just old, mach- I grew up in South Seattle, old machinists at Boeing. And like, they weren't especially educated guys, they weren't the brightest tools in the shed, but they loved Jesus and they read their Bible for 50 years and they were flowing 
with grace and kindness to people. Why? Because every day they fed from the well. You guys with me? Every day they were going to the source. And so because of that, these men were important and, and they were transformative in my life growing up simply because they were always serving, always giving from that deep well that the Lord was refilling. And so they can change people's lives. They weren't special men, but they're empowered by a great God. Okay? So the first thing we say is the kingdom is inverted. The little people who serve are the great people. You know, uh, this is, I can't remember where I read this from. I don't think it was Lewis, but I see it's Lewis. A couple years ago, I was reading someone talking about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom when we get there. Like, who will we see that's, wow, what an amazing saint. And the author was saying, I don't know, probably some random Christian, like, that was a peasant in Nepal or something. Like, somewhere you wouldn't expect that no one thinks of as great but someone who their whole life was dedicated to Jesus in little ways. That's the faith that God's after. He's after faith that moves mountains, not people that think they can. So for the first thing we see is the inversion of how kingdom ethics works. It's those who give that are much, not those who command. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus also establishes his authority, doesn't doesn't he? How do we know Jesus is the leader of the church? Because who serves like Jesus? Nobody serves like Jesus. He goes all the way down. He serves to the utmost. And so therefore, he's glorified to the highest. You get the connection? Again, that's the kingdom. What goes low, goes high. And vice versa. Nebuchadnezzar, who went high, ruler of the earth, he goes down. He's got to be a cow before he gets this right. So see the way the kingdom inverts directions here. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. So Jesus now gives them this promise that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's now told a bunch of fishermen that they're going to be the ruling men of the church. This is like silly, right? This is not how this is supposed to work. But again, God sees the diamond in the rough, doesn't he? God sees the strength in Peter. Now, Peter is kind of an idiot sometimes, if you guys read your scripture. But God sees in that a tool to be used, right? If you guys have ever read John, or especially the Johannine epistles, John is just overflowing with kindness. Like when I read John, especially 1 John, I feel like I'm hearing from an older brother how much he cares for me and wants me to see the road to walk. God saw in John this gentleness that even when he's angry with people in the church, he consoles and loves. Are you tracking? God sees inside of us and sees the good things he will turn and blossom into him to make us tools and powerful people in the kingdom. And so he looks at the fishermen at his table and the tax collectors and says, you guys, I'm going to put you up here. But we know where they got to go first, don't we? They got to go down. They're not at the bottom yet. The betrayal is still to happen. Peter's going to deny Jesus. They're all going to run away. Before they're going to be elevated, they got to go way down. And then they'll have the calling card. Then they'll have the right tools to be able to rebuild in his name. So follow with me here. Jesus is going to give authority, but it's going to require that the disciples suffer and serve to own and live into that authority, okay? If you want to be great in the kingdom, if you want to do something mighty for Jesus, you got two things that are in front of you. 
you need to experience suffering and you need to serve. Like this is like simple, but <laughs> there's an old marine, uh, marine motto that uh, all the important things are simple, all the simple things are hard. This is it. All you got to do is suffer and serve. All you need to do is completely pour yourself out and experience pain and you'll be ready for the kingdom. Oh, super. Thanks, Josh. I'm really encouraged by that. So that's the, that's the story. Actually, um, I was listening to uh, Tim Keller uh, yesterday uh, preaching through the Proverbs. And I think it's Proverbs 1. It, it actually specifically says, like, unless you experience trouble, you won't be wise. Solomon's writing this book full of how to be wise. He's like, also, things have to suck or you won't really know what I'm talking about. That's what is required to get the wisdom of God is experiencing difficulty. And the disciples are going to get that, right? All of them but John, we know, got executed. John lived till he's 90. Of course, he was in prison, so that's not like things went great for him either. They experienced the suffering necessary to be empowered as these tribes who are going to judge. Now, the next thing I want to see here, again, my theme is his weakness, our strength. He sees in these weak disciples the strength of the kingdom. They're going to be the first leaders of this church. But Jesus also knows where else strength is. This is verse 31. Now, if we look at the other synoptic passages, that's Mark and Matthew, we get the fuller story that Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me. So Luke, Luke makes an interesting editorial choice here, where he, d- he doesn't give us the beginning when, when in the other uh, synoptics when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and they're all like, no, 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 not, I'm not, not going to do that. And Luke gives us this extra statement we don't have in the other ones. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you, sift you like wheat. Now, I want to look at the second part in a bit, but let's look at just that part. This, Jesus addresses power here. Who is Satan asking? When Satan demands to have Simon, he's talking to God the Father. We know this because go to Job. If you guys have ever read the book of Job, the beginning of Job, it says that Satan is in the heavenly courts walking around, and God's like, what are you up to? Why are you here? And Satan's kind of this clever answer. Oh, you know, I'm just going around the earth checking things out. In, in Hebrew, it's very poetic. It's kind of like this little kind of limerick sort of clever phrase. And then God brings up Job, if you know your story. He says, have you ever checked out Job? Again, if you ask Job, he'd probably be like, I, you don't need to bring me up in these conversations. Don't have to talk about me, any. But God brings him up, and then, and then Satan says, oh, Job, he's got faith, whatever. If you let me touch him, take away his good things, he'll curse you to your face. He doesn't actually love you. He loves the things you give him, right? He loves the things that you provide. He doesn't actually love you for you. The name Satan, Shatan in Hebrew, it literally means accuser. Satan spends his time saying, you're not good enough. They don't really love you. And I mean this personally, I feel scared pointing fingers. Satan is actively, you guys, trying to tell God that you're not worth it. But you hear, man, isn't Jesus good? Jesus' power is such that he says, I prayed for you. Jesus communicates to the Father, no, no, no. I put my mark on that one. He can't have him. This is where your security and salvation comes from. It doesn't come from you being good. It comes from Jesus saying, that one's mine, hands off. I can't be clearer than that. If Jesus doesn't move, we're in trouble because Satan is a roaring lion. He'll devour every one of us if Jesus doesn't move to save us, to pluck us from the fire. Okay? Now, here's what's really interesting. I, I looked at what Calvin had to say on this earlier this week. I kind of grunted from memory here, but... Uh, Calvin 
takes this not as literally as I do. He's like, well, sift wheat. Uh, he doesn't like the image. He says, well, he means shake Simon up. I think that Calvin's wrong. I think that actually what's going on here, I'm flipping to Matthew 3 real quickly. You don't need to move if you don't want to. Uh, Matthew 3.12, uh, Jesus is prophesying. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Oh, sorry, this is John preaching, rather, John the Baptist. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. This is Jesus he's talking about. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So my question is, who's holding the winnowing fork? Why do you think about this? So the winnowing fork, you get the wheat and you throw it up. I mean, I'm not a farmer. You guys know more about this than I probably do. But you're throwing the wheat up, waiting for the chaff and the wheat to separate, right? John the Baptist says, Jesus does the threshing. And in Luke, it says Satan does the sifting. So who's at work? Who's the one doing the work on people to find out who's, chaff, who's the chaff, who's the reed, who, who's, the, who's the good stuff, who's not? And this is, this is the power of our God. Satan, the center of evil and darkness in our universe, is a tool of the Almighty. This is, I think, the encouragement, is when Satan demands to have Simon, Jesus says no, but he says, yes, you may sift him. What God is doing in our lives, I've mentioned suffering, is he uses the sifting of Satan, shaking us out to turn us into powerful creatures that are driven by the Spirit of God. Our, our sanctification is done by the enemy. Do you realize this? That the enemy, the one who wars against our souls, all he can do is make you a stronger Christian. Isn't that good news? So it's not the devil made me do it. As Satan is tempting and pushing and prodding and poking, he is unlocking the Holy Spirit's power to completely transform you from the inside out. This is what eternal security is, friends. If you're wondering, how can I be sure in my faith? Here's how sure you can be, that when Jesus tells Satan, you can sift a little bit, he knows you're going to come out the other side golden. You're going to be made new. That's the power of God that even the enemy, his purposes, turn to God's. We know this because look at the next thing. Jesus says, I pray that your faith may not fail. I talked about that. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus knows Peter's going to fail. And he says, when you get it flipped right, when you've turned around, when you've come back, You've got a job. Isn't that what God does to us? We're broken, needy, hurting, hungry, and God doesn't say, well, I'll fix you up. He says, oh, I got a job. You're going to be busy. I bring in the kingdom to do work. So this is the message for us is that Jesus' weakness, our strength, his weakness, our strength, the weakness of God and our betrayal result in our strength as Jesus gives us a role and the power to accomplish it. Now, um, Calvin has an interesting point to make here about what does it mean to be strong? What should we do for God? And I, I, think, I think what's really fascinating about this is Peter then, hearing this strength of your brothers, Peter immediately gets a huge head, huge ego. He's like, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. <laughs> like, like, the moment Peter gets a little pat on the head, he's just like, I'm the greatest in the kingdom. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's like us, right? He immediately is ready to go there. And, and Calvin cautions, he says, the foolish man says, 
because he doesn't know God, says, I can't do anything. And that's obviously not true because the Holy Spirit empowers us. And the fool also says, I can do anything I want. No, we can do all through Christ who strengthens us. You, you get the, the, the medium there, the, the median, which is by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do all he gives us. We can't do more than that. We can't do less than that. We will do exactly what the Holy Spirit gives to us. That's our goal. And then Jesus, to Peter's big prideful statement, Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So the betrayal is going to be complete for Peter. Again, if you would have, <laughs> you know, when, when scholars examine the Bible, they use different ways to determine how, you know, how to read and understand things. And there's a, a famous uh, a tool called the criterion of embarrassment. It's a fancy term. It basically means when you write something down, if you make it up, you don't make you look, yourself look bad, right? If you're, if you're writing your autobiography, you're not going to, well, maybe today we would because we kind of like to, anyway, <laughs> that's maybe less the case. In the ancient world, you know, if you're a Caesar, if you're a king, you don't say, hey, uh, Jesse, as my scribe, make sure to write how bad I was today. You don't do it. You write the good stuff. There's some not good stuff in here. Peter's got to step out. I'm really glad for this because, A, it gives us evidence of the trustworthiness of Scripture that Peter, the head of the church, looks like kind of an airhead right here. And two, I love it because I see me there. When someone says, hey, good sermon, Rice. I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, are you guys hearing me? I'm being honest with you. Like, can't we all do this with the little bits of kingdom work we do? We'll be like, oh, yes, I've done this. I'm the greatest. And so I'm so glad that Peter's here to just absolutely step in it. So then Jesus can be like, hey, hang on, you're not getting the order of how this works. You've got to keep going down until you get where you really are. That's why he tells him, Peter, the rooster's going to crow. It's going to happen. And he said to them, this is, the passage gets interesting here. He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. So this member is back earlier when Jesus sent the disciples out to preach his message. And he, he said, don't take anything with you. Just go. Just go meet the people. Be busy. Everything will take care of itself. He said, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. So earlier in the ministry, anything they needed, they could get from the population. Local people love the message of Jesus. He's popular. He's cool. He's got great things to say about the poor. What's going to happen now? We know what's coming next, don't we? When Jesus gets brought up in charges, where do all his friends go? They disappear into the woodwork, right? All the, all the little villages and towns and people that had Jesus come in, or the disciples come in and they fed them, hey, how about you stay at our house for a night? Teach us tomorrow about what Jesus is like. Those people are gone. So Jesus is telling them the easy times are over with. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. So Jesus is saying, last time was easy because everyone's on our team. Are you ready for what's next? Because no one's going to be on our team. In fact, the disciples aren't even going to be on their own team, right? They're going to they're leave the team too. Jesus is going to bring them back. Now, this is an interesting passage, the next half verse here. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So some people, I think, extreme, like, like I would just say, straight up, unbelieving scholars have been like, oh, is Jesus experiencing a loss of faith in this moment? Now he wants to get military and overthrow the Romans? No, that's not what's happening. What he's saying is, get equipped, get ready. This is the real deal. The spiritual war begins now. That's why Satan is busy sifting. Are you guys following me? Satan is at his work because the day is coming. It's almost here. The sacrifice is upon us. And Jesus has to 
combat the deepest temptations on our behalf, Jesus needs a sword because he has to look at the possibility of taking an easy route and say no. I'm going to say that again. Jesus is God. Could he have commanded a legion of angels and get a bunch of swords and take the whole Romans down and establish a kingdom over the whole earth? He could have done it instantly. But that's not the way God chose. God chose the way of suffering. And so Jesus needs a sword because he has to look at the option and say, no, no, I don't do things the easy way. I do things the way that God appoints. Okay? For I tell you, this is where Jesus goes, for I tell you that the scripture has been fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. This is back to Isaiah 53. Um, Isaiah 53, I'm not going to read a whole lot of it for you. You guys, if, if you flip through it on your own home, you know Isaiah 53. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. These are passages that we read about the Messiah. Can you imagine how confusing this must have been to first century Jews? We're waiting for the Davidic king, the king like David, but better. But apparently he's got to be beat up and humiliated because they don't know he got to go down to come up. They don't get the trajectory. The kingdom humiliates and then lifts up, right? This is what it says in Isaiah 53. I'll read just the last couple of verses. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put into grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many righteous. He'll bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and his spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He, was, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors down up. You guys getting the image? It keeps going over and over again. Jesus is going to go so low that God's going to say, you've got to be in charge of everything. That, that's what the eternal plan was, to glorify Jesus by his humiliation and his unaccountable recovery to glory. That's the biblical story. So Jesus says, I'm going to be numbered with the transgressors. The time is now. Last verse here is kind of comic, 38. They said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. Now, Spurgeon thinks this is like straight up like, stop, it's enough. It's, you're, you're, come on. Like, two swords? You're going to take down the Romans with two swords? This is really terrible planning, you guys. Do we, it's not entirely clear from the text. Are they asking Jesus, like, do we need more? Like, they're, are, they, are they wondering if it's enough? Or are they, are they showing him the swords because they know it's not enough? It doesn't give us a clear idea in the passage. Um, Calvin says, I think correctly, the disciples were too stupid to realize, <laughs> Calvin's fun like that, the disciples were too stupid to realize that the battle was not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces. Satan's job, you guys, is not to crucify Jesus, it's to keep him off the cross. I'll say that again. Satan's job in this passage, is not to put Jesus on the cross. Jesus is going there. Satan's job is to distract Jesus with another route to glory and power, another route that's not God's route. And so that's why when the disciples give him swords, Jesus is like, you're about to betray me, and the last thing you're going to do is say, hey, what about the easy way, Jesus? That's not the route our Savior chose, praise God. 
He chose the hard way. We're going to go really quickly to Zechariah 13. I'm just going to read it here. Um, you don't need to, need to flip there. These are all really brief. Listen to this. This is God. This is a prophecy of Zechariah, Zechariah 13. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I'm no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if someone asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Do you hear the echo? People who are prophets aren't going to look like prophets no more. They're going to have wounds from their friends. And then God says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Who unsheathes the sword of God's wrath against Jesus? God does. I want you to get this. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Satan does not put, are you guys getting this? Satan does not put Jesus on the cross. God elected to do it this way. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. God is the one who's going to execute judgment for you and for me on Jesus Christ. That was his vision. But let me encourage you. I will put this third. He says two-thirds of, of these people will be wiped out in this prophecy. I will put this third that remains into the fire and refine them as one refined silver. You hear the sifting? They're going to be refined. I will test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord, the Yahweh is my God. So how does God preserve a broken, sinful people? He executes judgment on his son Jesus and then saves his people, purifies them like gold so we can be his family forever. This is the gospel message, you guys. This is nothing new. This is nothing different than what you've heard week in and week out. Our joy is that Jesus' humiliation allows us to see eternal joy and security. Now, John Piper um, said that the security of our salvation, I'm paraphrasing, the security of our salvation is a group project. Now, if you guys have been in school, who liked group projects growing up, right? Like, weren't they always frustrating? Because, like, there's a couple slackers that don't do anything. There's one really bossy person that's really good at what they're doing, but they tell them what. Yeah, we all hate group projects, right? That's actually how eternal security works. When my brother encourages me in my weakness, he's part of the way that we're reminded Jesus has our salvation. Jesus has our strength. Our salvation, Paul says, is hid with Christ in God. Keep waiting, keep trusting, keep holding on. You get me? When my brother challenges me and says, Josh, you got to knock this off. This part of your life is broken. Give it to God. He is helping work that security out. So <laughs> I'm, I'm full of similes and, and metaphors today. Um, Tim Keller, uh, in a couple, a couple days ago, I was listening to this. He's talking about What's required of our faith? This is a fun thought. If you're falling off a cliff and you're reaching out for anything to stop you and you see a branch, how much faith do you need to get saved from plummeting to your death? It's not about how hard you have faith. It's not about your belief. Do you reach out and grab it? Because the trustworthiness of you not falling is how strong is that branch? 
If that branch ain't strong, you're going down. It doesn't matter whether you're like, I believe. Nope, you're going down. <laughs> but if all your belief is, I don't think this will work, you'll be saved. Isn't that the message of Scripture? If you don't even think it's, if you're not even sure, but you say, I have no other option, that's what you need. Isn't that what Peter says when all the, uh, when Jesus has a couple hundred disciples earlier and almost all of them leave. When they leave, he says to his 12, are you guys leaving too? And Peter says, where else shall we go? You have the words of life. Peter doesn't say, this is great. He doesn't, we've seen Peter. He doesn't know what's going on. He's screwing up all the time, but he's just like, where else can I go? This is my only option. If Jesus is your only and last option, you are perfectly placed to enjoy life with him. If Jesus is your second or third option and you've got a couple things you're looking for, it won't work for you. He's got to be your only thing left. You with me? This is why Jesus is, this is why God unsees the sword against Jesus. Because if you're waiting on only him, then you can look at the cross and see the execution of our Savior, crucified for our sins and iniquities, struck down. Get the image here. So much of Scripture is about wisdom, isn't it? Do these things and God blesses you. Do these things and God curses you. The story of Jesus is the blessed one, the holy one, the sinless one, the one that deserves glory and honor, took shame and humiliation to bring you and I close to God. The power and love of God is such that he accepts what he never deserved so you and I can have what we don't deserve either, which is eternal life and joy with him. You with me? Let me close with this. Well, maybe I'll close. We'll see how I feel about it. We'll go real quickly. 1 Corinthians 1. <laughs> I love Paul in 1 Corinthians here. For the word of the cross, if you're like, this is nuts, Josh. This is so stupid. Why didn't God pick any other way? Paul is like, I hear you, brother. <laughs> he says here in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly, right? What's folly mean? Foolishness, stupidity, nonsense. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. His weakness, our strength, listen. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater, the scholar, the academic, the talking head on Fox News? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Here's our last verse here. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you see the beauty here? Jesus is so weak that he's strong. He's so weak that we find power in him. He goes so low that the only place he can go is absolute, eternal glory, honor, and praise because he did the impossible. That's the message of Jesus for us. Last thing I want to encourage you with here. I'm going to go back to Job, okay? I'm going to go back to the Old Testament because I love going here. Just real quickly. Job is another man who is humiliated. 
Job is another man who suffered. I'm on the wrong page here. Sorry. And this is what he says in the midst of his suffering in Job 19. He says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Now, if you guys know anything about Job, it is older than the Pentateuch. It's older than Genesis. Job lived before Moses. This is one of the oldest texts we have in human history. So one of the oldest texts in the world says, Would someone listen? I've got something to say. Were my words engraved forever? He's saying, I need everybody to read what i got to say. And so you should be like, oh, this has been waiting for like three and a half thousand years. Okay, what do you have to say, Job? I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. So Job in his suffering says, everyone needs to know the thing I'm waiting for is my Redeemer to stand in charge and judge. Now that would be scary to us, except he knows this Redeemer. He loves this Redeemer. This Jesus is kind to us. After my skin has been thus destroyed, Job knows he's going to die. Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart faints within me. Job's strength in his suffering and of the horrible things that happened to his life is looking at his Redeemer and saying, if he comes to judge and pronounce what's true, I'm going to be okay. That's the Christian's trust. If God shows up, I'll be okay. There's only two ways, ladies and gentlemen, we leave this life. We can leave waiting for God's appearance or dreading it. And the scripture says, have joy. Your Lord is coming so soon. Let's trust that he comes with grace and power. And we can enjoy that right now as we seek him.